Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live, the podcast where we're exploring the digital revolution and the remarkable things taking place in the world today that are affecting, and I hope in most ways, improving both our personal lives and our business lives. As always, I'm delighted to have with us today one of our favorite and longest running Cloud Wars Live guests, Wayne Saden. Wayne is a former CIO, CDO, and CTO. He's currently a top analyst on the Acceleration Economy Analyst Network, and he advises boards of directors and CEOs on how to weave digital strategy and business strategy into a single strategy for growth and innovation. Wayne, welcome. It's always a pleasure to have you. Well, after that introduction, it's really a pleasure to be here, Bob. <laughs> well, we'll see, you know, Wayne would boost it up like that. You know, you really have to, you know, deliver even better than usual. You mean, or I'm going to be replaced by an AI? Uh, we we do have some uh, prototypes, you know, in in the lab, Wayne. But I don't know. They don't. They don't. As good as they are, they don't have your charm. Your your you know bon vivant. And uh, I think Wayne, you know, some of the stories that you're able to tell about across industries and is it a leadership issue, a tech issue, a culture issue, whatever it is. Now, Wayne, I can say you're irreplaceable. Well, thank you so much, Bob. Um, I'm sure the AI didn't tell you to say that. Uh, right. No, no. <laughs> clearly, clearly not. It's, it's my own idea, Wayne. I, I swear. I promise. But Wayne, you know, uh, these days it seems like, um, you know, we, we talk once a month. We could probably talk, you know, uh, five times a month with the things that are happening today, the pace of disruptive change in our world. And I know you've got two juicy ones to talk about today. So let me turn it over to you. Yeah, I'm happy to start. Um, two topics are going to be generative AI, the chat GPT, et cetera, and also yesterday's announcement of the National Cybersecurity Strategy. There's a lot to talk about on both of them. We'll just hit the high points and maybe come back in our other four meetings that we'll have. Yeah. Uh, so the first one is the, the generative AI. So look, I want to start with the story since you mentioned that. I started college as a computer science major intending in 1970. And they told me, don't major in computer science, major in electrical engineering. Because in five years, 1975, AI was going to be writing all the programs in the world, and you'd be out of a job. So build the hardware, because that's where we're going to need people. Now, I understand they told the same thing to the people at MIT in 1956, who came up with the term AI. And now I heard it again 10 years later and 10 years later, and here we are in 2023, hearing that ChatGPT can write better code than programmers. So is it the next big thing? Is it something that's been around for a while and just got popular? Bob, I'm reminded, of, remember a year, year and a half ago, we started talking about the metaverse when Facebook rebranded and it was meta and the metaverse was going to change the world, $13 trillion dollars. And now a year later, there's still work being done, but it's no longer the top of every headline in every newspaper around the world. And so the question we got is, we got to answer is, be, let's go behind that. Forget the headlines, what's in this product, right? Yes. Yeah. When, you know, for a while, I was reminded of that. We tend to... Uh... We tend to forget that AI has been around for, I believe now, 66 years. Uh, and we see things like that. You know, your reference to what you were told in 1970, oh, don't get into this, don't get into that. Uh, and, you know, we laugh and say, oh, what were those, you know, know-nothings thinking back then? But 
I'm sure that within a small number of years from today, people are going to look back at this and say, what bozos, you know, didn't they know what was going on? But, you know, we do the best we can. I think that's, uh, you know, the, the human condition. We know things are going to be different, better, faster in the future. I hope they're going to be better. I believe they will be. But uh, our ability to ride these uh, more frequent, more intense, and more disruptive waves of change, I think, is, a, is our ability to handle that, manage it, not get swamped by or carried away by these waves, I think is as important as uh, as any skill that leaders could have right now. So I think the, the the way you've sort of framed out your discussion today about what's going on with generative AI and so forth like that is, is really key. And I wouldn't be surprised when you find a nifty way to weave the generative AI and cybersecurity things together. I wouldn't have put them in my agenda if I didn't have a close. Um, I've been learning journalism from guys like you. So with generative AI, first of all, let's look at ChatGPT. ChatGPT. It's the GPT-3 model. Um, it has 300 billion words and 175 billion trainable parameters. And so it sucked up a lot of information to train that system. And we've seen the examples of the dumb things it says. They call them hallucinations. That's the technical term when it goes off on a rant. Uh, there's also bias. We'll talk E3.5, GPT-4 that are on the horizon. We're talking about training them with enormous amounts of data beyond what went into the current models and also using something called RLHF, reinforcement learning with human feedback. That means asking people what the answer should be. That's, I'm sure, what Tesla's doing with the data from self-driving cars. When the human takes over the wheel, what did they do differently than the AI was going to do? So as we start training these things to be smarter, there's no question that their answers are going to be sharper and better. And so we're, we're coming to a world now where the investment cycle, you know, Microsoft putting $10 billion into open AI, the race is on, Google, Microsoft, everybody embedding AI. And so the unlocking of tens of billions of dollars of investment, venture capital interest, the uh, PhDs are, I think, now going from, I'm going to write a really cool thesis to I'm going to make $100 million in three years. The This kind of investment has just got to trigger uh, a step change. Like, by the way, the metaverse, for all of its kind of decreased popularity, had a step change in investment and there's stuff going to be coming out. Yeah. And that's where I think we'll be. So I got a couple of winners I want to mention. Who's sure. the biggest winner in generative AI right now? People who sell MIPS. Uh -huh. When you look at the cost of one of these queries, I've seen numbers that say it's 20 times as expensive as a Google or Bing query. It's 200 times. I, I haven't seen substantive numbers but we know it's a heck of a lot more computing power. And as the models get bigger, either they get smarter, the algorithms get better, and then the costs don't go up exponentially, or they don't get better, and then the, a, the IAAS, infrastructures as service vendors, start to mint money off of this. Kind of like, look what happened with crypto, right? The crypto mining business got big enough that it consumed measurable parts of nation's electricity. I think we're going to find the same thing here. So the winners are going to be, Microsoft is investing $10 billion in open AI. And I thought, this company had a few hundred people. What are they going to do with $10 billion? And the answer is they're going to buy disk drives. 
and they're going to buy networks, and they're going to buy cycles. And so my guess is they'll get a couple of Microsoft data centers built for them, and that'll consume a good part of that money. The, so the other winners, of course, is companies like NVIDIA, you know, the people who build the specialized boards for inference. And again, they had the renaissance with cyber, and they're doing it again, uh, crypto rather, and they're doing it again now with, with generative AI. So we're learning that this stuff takes more and more power, which is in itself a risk. We're concentrating the ability to do this in companies that can spend billions of dollars to build the models. So the question becomes, how do you create an open environment for the little person to compete? Um, and that's that's kind of an ethical challenge, I think, for the industry that has to be addressed. If you create this oligopoly, uh, uh, I guess oligopsony, uh, a small group of people with the power, they can change the world, which brings me to bias. You know, we talk about bias in these systems. We trained it using written words, not as much spoken words. So if there's a subculture that is more of an oral tradition and less written, they've been underrepresented. If the data we picked doesn't represent the people we're trying to represent, we have bias. Mm -hmm. But more insidiously, what happens if companies introduce deliberate bias? Here's my great AI model. It's free but it always, always recommends you eat this breakfast cereal. It always recommends that car would be a better choice. Um, how do we get the deliberate bias kind of advertising slant, marketing slant out of our AIs? Uh, that's going to be a risk to, to me, is not knowing where, where, um, where we're kind of being led. We, we're already maybe being led by the Facebook, Google, Amazon, you know, the FANG companies. With AI, are we going to be led more subtly, more insidiously? It's a risk. Wayne, I yeah, I I, I think you're absolutely right in, in highlighting this. And because of this sort of mystique around AI, uh, it, it's very real. But I just think about this today, like with so many media companies, uh, you know, uh, their claim to be wholly objective when really none of them is. And I don't mind that they're not objective. Just say you're not objective. And this is my point of view on things. And maybe Wayne will get to the point where we'll see that with AI as well. Okay. We are, we have a bias toward this general area. What you see on our things is going to be highly informed and we'll show. I, I don't, I won't mind that as long as it's explained up front about what point of view somebody's coming from. But the one that is just, I think people overall are just going to be totally intolerant of are the ones that say, oh, no, no, we're the most objective breakfast cereal recommender in the world, when in fact, you know, as you said, they're all pointing toward one direction. So uh, I wonder if they'll become some sort of new leadership positions in companies around this thing, you know, uh, chief bias officer, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I erase it, I rationalize it, or, you know, I uh, I try to put it in there subtly. It, it, it is going to be a wild, wild new world. So the CMO is the chief bias officer oh, yeah. in most yeah, companies, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so will AI report to the CMO? Um, you know, again, I, I don't think anything is wrong with that, to your point. If I've got, what's the saying, if the product is free or the product? Yeah. So if yeah. you're going to let me do free AI queries and you're paying for it out of your pocket, 
should I expect anything less than you're going to send the message you want to send? Yeah. So maybe we need public benefit corporations. Maybe we need more government regulations. Maybe we need more kind of self-policing, you know, kind of like the open source movement. Maybe there is, and I'm no, I'm no AI researcher, kind of an open AI source environment where we all know the data. Now, which of us can look at a hundred trillion trainable parameters and decide yeah. that they're okay? Yeah. My guess is you put enough people against open source and they could um, at least catch most of it. So I think that's going to be a very interesting set of evolutionary steps uh, to judge where these AIs are taking us. Because if it sounds glib, well, I'm sorry, you're an old journalist. If it sounds glib, people tend to believe it, which is how public relations works, right? Sorry, mm -hmm. I don't mean to be insulting public relations people. <laughs> I'm not sure that's possible, but uh, <laughs> when the, uh, it, I, I think that's a great point. The only thing I say is like, uh, just companies have to find a way to be upfront and honest about this. Um, and because if they're not, then I do think, as you said, that the regulatory thing, and I am not a big fan of uh, of that happening, except when if if you know the the private sector sidesteps its own responsibilities, you're gonna you know the private sector is gonna get what it asked for, or even if it didn't ask for it, but that yeah, the regulations will come in. All right, Wayne. Good. But I got I, one more thing I want to mention in risks because I I run the I lead the mod, the data modernization channel for Acceleration Economy, so I think of data first these days. And I thought of something: if right now you have a data leak, somebody puts something somewhere they shouldn't. They're an internal person. They publish a research paper. They put something on a website. They post it on their Facebook page. The chances that somebody wanting to do your company ill will see it is relatively small, unless they publish it in the New York Times or put it in Acceleration Economy's website. Imagine an AI that sees the whole internet, sees every word ever written, doesn't forget anything, and is really good at finding patterns. Mm -hmm. And now you ask it a question, what is my competitor doing? And the thing says, well, there was this obscure paper written over there, published on the hometown newspaper of one of your engineers, and it says this. <laughs> so whether the data is inadvertently disclosed, somebody oopses and sends something out they shouldn't, or somebody purloins the data and posts it on the dark web, it is now going to be insanely discoverable and usable by anybody that means you ill whether they're a com legitimate competitor or somebody that wants to you know, get you in trouble in some way. So the AI becomes the ultimate data discovery tool. And I think companies have got to tighten down their data leakage controls to make very, very sure that this stuff doesn't get out anywhere, anytime, because the AI will find it and let everybody know about it. So that's a new risk that we didn't have to worry about before. Yeah. Hey, Wayne, if I could there too, uh, I'm really going off on a tangent here, but in the, both the movie Jurassic Park, but the book, you know, Michael Crichton's book was fantastic. And the, the, uh, the one sort of egghead guy in the book, he was trying to warn the Jurassic Park creators in advance. He said, you are underestimating, you know, the power of 
nature and uh, you know the the you think you can control everything because you can control what you can imagine he said it's the stuff you cannot imagine that is going to be disruptive here so the point you made just a moment ago Wayne about companies really going to have to tighten down on data leakage of that's a that's an excellent point companies have to do that but I don't know that that's going to be enough given you know, that that thing you described that sees everything, forgets nothing, <laughs> and can can be oriented to be very precise and very focused on certain things. So um I uh, I don't mean to just say give up. There's there's nothing that can be done, but the magnitude of the challenge is mm -hmm. gonna be uh greatly, greatly uh enhanced, I think, through all of this. So again, well, we've all got to be on our toes and not try to take yesterday's tools into tomorrow's projects yeah and that's a big topic we'll talk about in a moment when we talk about the cybersecurity yeah. uh thing from the government but i do want to say one thing since you just mentioned a book i'm going to mention a book yeah if you want to understand where this might go there is a book that got published i think last year called first light of day it's written by a guy named michael steep s-t-e-e-p and Michael is now the founder and executive director of the Stanford Disruptive Technology and Digital Cities Program. He was at Xerox, at Palo Alto Research, at Apple, at Microsoft. So he knows the tech, and now his job is to imagine the future. And the book is fascinating. Half of it is a novel written about the threshold of the uh, sentient AI about 25 years in the future, and it's pitting governments against corporations, against researchers and ethicists. And so it exa examines the kind of decisions that we might make. But the protagonist lives in a world that is run by intelligent agents. Everybody that's in the intelligentsia has four or five or six of these things, one to help with work, one to help with exercise, one is their analyst, there's their shrink. The second half of the book is a fact-based book where Michael takes all of the tech in the book and explains where it came from with a million footnotes. So if you want to understand where we're going in cities and in AI, it is a terrific, it's a scary book, but it's a terrific book because how many novels have footnotes? <laughs> so if you want to learn about this stuff, just start with the novel and read the footnotes and you can spend probably four hours reading the novel and five days looking at the footnotes. And it's, it's, I heartily recommend it if you care about where we're going with intelligent agents and AI and what that might do to cities and society. Wayne, that's a, a fantastic idea there. First light of day by Michael Steep. Great recommendation, Wayne. Thank you. So I do want to mention with AI, who are the, there's a couple of losers. I mentioned winners and then we kind of got off track, but who are the losers? And the losers to me, and a lot of people are going to poo-poo this, it's people who make their living off of the knowledge they have. I read an article, haven't verified it yet, that the current generative AIs are able to almost pass the bar exam. They're able to get a B on the medical exam, the medical practice exams. So when these tools can pass the test, we used to certify our lawyers and our doctors and other professions as well. How long will it be before, to your point, jokingly, not the gray hairs that have been doing this for 40 years and have the stories, but the paralegals, the people moving up and do the grunt work, 
whether it's medical or research or legal, this tool is going to either be the biggest augmentation of human abilities, or it's going to be the biggest disruption, or it's going to be both. Yeah. So it's going to be about how you can, I don't know what you want to call it, an AI wrangler, like knowledge engineer knows how to ask the question. If you ask the wrong question, you get a glib sounding wrong answer. Mm-hmm. So being able to phrase the question correctly will matter a lot. Being able to know which AI model to choose will matter a lot. So I think you'll find the emergence of whole new professions who are choosing how a question gets asked and then how the answer gets passed to another tool and transformed into the real answer through a image generating program. Mm-hmm. But I think a whole lot of people who make their living off the fact that they've memorized the law library or memorized the medical dictionary, uh, those professions are going to change dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we don't have enough doctors and maybe we have too many lawyers. People might think that. So maybe that helps in one case and hurts in the other. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Wayne, our, uh, your sort of fellow guest here, longtime monthly guest on Cloud Wars Live, Christopher Lockhead, he's talked about the death of the knowledge worker and the rise mm-hmm. of the intellectual capitalist. Mm-hmm. I think very much along the lines of what you're describing here. So yeah, I think for a lot of young people today, that is uh, you're offering some great advice on, you know, what to do. And for leaders and companies, you know, how they, the, the skills they look at, the skills they want to bring into the organization, um, you know, where they're, they're going to find new gaps in their capabilities to deal with this fast changing world and, you know, how they have to help those people who are currently going to be put in that risky, mm-hmm. you know, that risky spot, how they move up to become those sort of, what do you call them, AI wranglers. Mm-hmm. That's that's yep. a very interesting possibility. And, and so the other thing I see is take the technology of AI and look, it, it they call it artificial intelligence, but I like to think of AI as augmented intelligence. Mm-hmm. It never forgets, it finds patterns, and now it's getting smart enough to hear what you're saying and whisper in your ear. Mm-hmm. So imagine combining the metaverse, augmented reality, with AI. And so you send the junior tech out to go look at your submarine or nuclear reactor or oil rig. You used to have to send somebody with 30 years of practical experience out to look at these things because they're complicated and they're very variable and the problems are oftentimes pretty opaque. But now you send a junior tech out, but they have their wise mentor in their ear, tied to their eyeglasses. So the wise mentor sees what you see and then whispers in your ear when you hear hoofbeats, that's a zebra, not a horse. (laughs) And so I think over the next few years, I can't predict the far future. AI might just give us all a life of leisure. I don't know. But for a while, these jobs are going to be people plus technology to become safer, faster, more productive, stronger, and so on. Now throw robotics into that mix. You've seen the stuff that's going on at uh, Boston Dynamics, the Google company that now is Hyundai, and the robots that jump and run and hand people things. Now throw a generative AI next generation into them, and it's either wonderful or scary. Mm -hmm. It's the intelligent helper that reminds you when you forgot to do something you were supposed to do. Maybe it's the teaching assistant. 
I've seen it used in things like senior living, where you've got to help people bathe and get them out of bed and move them around. Um, so we're going to see a tremendous explosion of AR plus robotics plus AI, augmented muscles, augmented reality, and augmented intelligence. And so I think we're going to find augmented employees. They have a tool to make them, again, smarter, stronger, faster, safer, more productive. So I'm predicting not the dystopian future. We're all sitting around with robots doing the work and telling us what to do, but a future where we're all able to function at our highest level with tools that assist us in physical as well as mental work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very exciting, Wayne. Now, do you want to, is you ready to flip over from yep. exciting to scary? Well, now we'll talk about the other scary thing. Uh, yesterday, the White House revealed the National Cybersecurity Strategy. And it's a large paper with a lot of meat to it. So I'm just going to cover two things that came right out of the introduction. Um, they talk about rebalancing responsibility. And what that means is they want to shift the responsibility for bad security from the people who are attacked and lose things, small businesses, governments, large companies, to the manufacturer of the insecure hardware and software. So instead of saying, oops, that software didn't work like the vendor planned and you get ransomware, now it's going to be up to the vendor to make sure you don't and can't get ransomware. So that's what they're saying is they're going to move the onus back onto the big company. And it's not so much big, I think, as it's the ones producing this garbage. You think about cybersecurity, if you step back, this is a failed strategy. Stuff shouldn't, if we bought cars as, as reliable as our cybersecurity defenses, we'd be crashing into walls all the time. Would you want an airplane as reliable as your browser or your you know, cyber device? No, the things would be crashing into mountains. So we created an environment where companies didn't have to provide a secure product because they could say, well, it's how you use it. It's how you configure it. It's what add-on products you build. You know, people kid Microsoft is saying they created an entire industry by having security with uh, software with bugs in it. The entire industry of patching the bugs and putting the borders around it. Microsoft says they're the biggest cybersecurity vendor in the world. And the counter argument is, well, because your software needs it. And I'm not picking on Microsoft. That IBM, uh, Unix companies, they all like that. So what the government is finally saying is, we're going to put the responsibility back on the manufacturer of hardware and software and hold them accountable. So who? what does this mean? If you're a vendor, watch out you are going to get bombarded with requirements. Is your How secure is secure enough? How available is available enough? How private is private enough? So expect to see a huge change in the profit margins, at least short term, as companies have to fix what they produce to prove they are solid, to prove they have no bugs. You know, we don't know how to make guaranteed, unbreakable software at scale. If anybody does, they're not telling me. Um, I've seen it in labs. I've seen it you know, in certain research projects, but it's not a commercial scale product at any reasonable cost and time. 
And so companies are going to be suffering. And so when you do your analysis of the cloud wars top 10, they are clearly going to be in the sights of this. What's it going to do to their margins? What's it going to be to their feature deployment? Now, if you're a buyer, if you're a customer of all this, a CIO, yay. This says to me as a CIO, I can spend less of my time playing defense and more of my time playing offense because I'm not worried about the stuff falling over and breaking every time I turn around. Uh, the other winner, of course, is the tort lawyers. I'm sorry to say, but they're going to go after companies when this legislation gets enacted and say, that had a bug, you owe us a billion dollars. And, you know, that's, you've probably seen these mass torts. You get a dollar 47 and the lawyer makes a hundred million bucks. And so I don't know how we're going to control this because this is going to be the biggest legal bonanza probably in history as we go after every company that ever produced software with any bugs. But in general, it sounds like a great idea saying there are going to be standards about quality in software. So that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is realign incentives. That's another phrase used. Careful balance between defending ourselves against urgent threats today and simultaneously strategically planning for and investing in a resilient future. Now, there's a lot of words after that, and I think a lot of that is going to be government. It's going to be the money they put to research, funding research institutes, funding government centers of excellence, and helping us put in the tools for the future. You know, if you're a company, a commercial company, you are trying to build stuff to sell today. You're rarely thinking about the strategic implication 20 years from now of a piece of code you're dropping. But the government has that time horizon. So I think it's going to be a combination of researchers. Um, they're going to benefit because they're going to need a lot more researchers who think about the future. They're going to need a lot more federal contractor investments. Remember, the federal government is one of the biggest buyers of tech in the world. And if you had state and local governments, they probably swamp everything. And as the government tightens their rules, if you're going to sell to DOD and then to Fed and then to state and local, you've got to follow various standards. There's a rising tide here. So the contractors are going to be able to charge more, I'm guessing, and invest in research to support these government initiatives for long term. Um, so I think that's going to be terrific. I also think there'll be lawyers involved because there's going to be a lot of regulations that have to be turned out to govern this stuff. What mix is appropriate between short-term and long-term investments? Again, if you if you miss, a lawyer comes and sues you. So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, rule drafting, a lot of standards making, and then a lot of litigation to sort this all out. Well, Wayne, I got to say, uh, you know, the, the old uh, Groucho Marx song about, you know, whatever it is, I'm against it. Uh, I am not that, if I could narrow that down a little, any scenario where uh, you've got tort lawyers celebrating and rejoicing, I'm against it. Uh, there, I understand what you're saying. There's got to be more rigor among companies that set out to say, I will be you know, in the cybersecurity business. I understand that everybody's got, got to get better all the time. But wow, the, the thing where the outcome is, lawyers suing and suing and suing and 
government policy legislation that uh, encourages that or incentivizes it or rewards it. Wow, that's a terrible, that's a terrible, terrible, terrible outcome. So I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about this. Uh, I hope that somewhere in the sausage making process, there's room for some uh, revision of this because well, I think you're right. And I think there's two possible outcomes depending on how it's implemented, which is the back rooms of lawmaking. One way is going to be heavy handed regulation, litigation, and uh, winner picking. This company has to have an investment. This technology has to have an investment. Uh, if the government decides that, like they did with some other industries, they're going to lead us to blind alleys and companies are going to invest based on who gets the biggest check. So that could be the wrong way to do this. The right way is to write intelligent, thoughtful standards that are supported by industry and government, you know, both the vendors and the users, and then maybe grandfather in. Look, we know you broke the software 20 years ago. We're talking about next year or the year after. So the government can choose to be heavy-handed and regulatory and legal, which I hate to say it, you know it, that tends to be how they think. Or we can work collaboratively to say, what are the minimum standards for security, for availability, for privacy that are reasonable? And you know, to, to talk about what you said before when we we're talking about AI, the security industry got themselves here. The internet was never designed to be secure. It's kind of amazing. It was a DOD project designed to be unbreakable if you couldn't break the cut the wires, but nobody imagined the hacking mindset of 30, 40, 50 years later. And so the story with AI is kind of a cautionary one. Cybersecurity has become a national challenge. Mm -hmm. Can another country or a threat actor shut down the entire infrastructure of the United States? Um, how many SCADA systems and critical industries are unprotected? Uh, I worked in a number of critical industries, financial services, uh, logistics, supply chain, energy. There are places in these industries that are extremely vulnerable to this day. And the government is working to shore them up. The industry is working to shore them up. But it conflicts with short-term profitability, which is what the markets insist on. Mm -hmm. And so we got ourselves into this mess, and it could theoretically cause global problems. Let's not do the same thing with AI. That's how they tie together. We're at the beginning of AI broadening into general use. Think about the internet of 50 years ago. That's where AI is today a great tool that's starting to reach commercial scale. And so, again, um, I share your fear. When the government gets involved, it often doesn't go well. But this is where we as an industry, the CISOs, the vendors, the CIOs that buy it, have got to be out there with their voices heard. I'm not so interested in anybody suing Microsoft, Oracle, SAP, Cisco, and everybody else. As I am in a standard that says in two years, the product you sell me should have these standards or else somebody's going to sue you. Yeah. yeah. So, Bob, it's as always, it's a challenge for society. And cyber is becoming existential for a lot of industries. The ransomware attacks, 
Um, we got to do something. And clearly, as an industry, we have not taken the leadership position. Well, Wayne, on your notes, your final line is, I hope we've learned something. Uh, I I, <laughs> I sure echo that. And uh, Wayne, you know, my my uh, snarly comments about uh, tort lawyers and all that mm -hmm. aside, uh, you know, as always, you force us to think about things in different ways, long term with short term. And uh, Wayne, you just this is terrific. This is terrific. You you never cease to come up with powerful ideas and challenges, even if they're things that, you know, some of us are going to say, I, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to worry about that. I have other stuff to, we, we, we do need to think about it. We need to figure out uh, the right way. So uh, my friend, thank you for forcing everybody to take a look, you know, on the, the new cool kid and the thing that's been around, you know, uh, being a pain in the ass for the last 25, 30 years and really uh, intensifying recently about cybersecurity, Wayne. Great stuff as always. Uh, well done, sir. Thank you, Bob. I guess this means I'm staying one step ahead of the AI. <laughs> I bet you're 10 or 12 steps ahead of it and the lead's going to increase for sure. <laughs> for sure. Wayne, thanks a lot. It's always good to have you. Take care, Bob. All right, friends, thanks to all of you for being with us. He's Wayne Saden. He's the big brain thinking about what's going on. Check out a lot of his stuff on accelerationeconomy.com. You won't be sorry you did. We'll see you next time.